Okay, so... Controversial. Yeah, no, I love it. I love it. And that's probably why you and I get along so well. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Have you ever had a client or athlete who was dealing with Achilles pain? Maybe it was a gen pop client who was a little overweight. Maybe it was a weekend warrior whose heel was stiff after a game of basketball or pickleball. Or maybe it was a high-performing athlete who was dealing with tendinopathy or maybe even rehabbing an Achilles tear. Regardless, Achilles issues are on the rise. And as trainers and coaches, the more informed we are about these issues, the better we can take care of the clients and athletes we're working with. That's why today I've sought out the James Bond of tendinopathy, Jared Antflick. Jared consults to teams in the UK's English Premier League, Premiership Rugby, tennis, track and field, as well as the NBA and NFL teams in the US. He has a master's in sports physiotherapy from La Trobe University and is currently a PhD candidate at Imperial College in London. He also works as a consultant physiotherapist at the Fortius Clinic London as a specialist in tendinopathy, undertaking research in the management and diagnosis of tendinopathy. Now, if you're a regular to the show, welcome back. As always, love and appreciate you. And if you're new here, welcome. I'm Mike Robertson, and this is the Physical Preparation Podcast. In this show, we take deep dives into the art and science of coaching, cueing, program design, business, and personal development. Basically, anything to help you become a better trainer, coach, or rehab professional. Now, while I've always been fascinated with the Achilles, it wasn't until my guy Ed Sumner from the Brooklyn Nets tore his a few years ago that I really dove into the research and literature. During my research, I had numerous practitioners point me in Jared's direction, and I just knew I had to get him on the show. So today, we're going to take a deep dive into Achilles issues. To begin, we're going to start broad and talk about the lifestyle factors that predispose your clients and athletes to Achilles pain. We're going to talk a little bit about the shape and structure of the Achilles tendon and how it's different from the patellar tendon because you can't necessarily treat them the same way. From there, we're going to really hone in on the Achilles and issues you might see there. For starters, we'll discuss diagnosing and evaluating the Achilles, both from a trainer or coach's perspective down to the imaging tools a rehab professional or clinician might have access to. And probably my favorite part of the episode, we're going to talk about program design for loading the Achilles and why the strength and conditioning coach or physical prep coaches are so important in this process. And last but not least, Jared's going to give us some actionable items that you can start incorporating right now, today, to help your clients and athletes feel better. I think there's an awesome blend of higher level science and physiology combined with brass tacks training info in this episode, and I really think you're going to enjoy it. So we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll jump into this awesome episode with Jared Antflick. Did you know that in any given year, 40% of the trainers and coaches in our industry will leave our industry? Maybe that's why it seems like almost every day I talk to trainers and coaches who are frustrated. Maybe they're frustrated with the results they're getting. Maybe they're frustrated because they don't have trusted resources to learn from. And maybe they're frustrated because they simply don't have enough clients and wonder how long they'll be able to stay in the industry. So if this sounds anything like you, let me tell you how I can help. My Complete Coach Certification was created for trainers and coaches just like you. 
people who are serious about the results they get and know that becoming a better coach can directly translate to a bigger bottom line. This certification is going to take the last 20 plus years of my life's work and put it all into one massive course. In the cert, you'll learn how to use my R7 system to create seamless, integrated, and efficient programs for clients and athletes of all shapes and sizes. You'll learn the exact progressions, regressions, and coaching cues I use in the gym to help your clients squat, hinge, press, and pull with awesome technique. You'll learn my streamlined assessment process that will help you determine the exact movements your clients should be performing when they come in the gym. And last but not least, you'll learn how to create relationships and build rapport with virtually everyone you train so you can get the best possible results. Of course, there's a lot more that I cover, but that should give you a pretty good idea of what the CERT is all about. Now here's the thing, spots for the CERT only open twice per year for a limited time. But if you join my free insiders list now, you'll be able to save $200 when my next group opens. To get on the insiders list, just head over to completecoachcertification.com. Again, that's completecoachcertification.com and then stay tuned for our launch emails very soon. Thank you so much for your support and I hope you'll join us when the next Complete Coach Certification launches. Jared, man, thank you so much for coming on the show here today. Very, very excited to have you on. Could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Firstly, thanks for having me. Very, very kind of you. I know that you're very busy and you have some pretty uh, pretty interesting guests and, and some, some reputable guests before me. Um, so I'm middle-aged. Um, I never <laughs> thought my 20-something-year-old self would hear me say that ever. Um, I always thought I would never age and get old, but there I am. I was born in Canada, grew up in Australia, educated in Australia, and uh, live in London with my young family. I have a, a young son and... Uh, a wife who I met while um, I was doing one of my first degrees. Uh, she's a yoga teacher and we're expecting our second son soon. Um, I'm a clinician, so I uh, thank you. I'll be a bit of a handful with juggling that. <laughs> um, I'm a clinician as well. So I work at um, Fortius Clinic, which is a big orthopedic clinic here in London, as well as a private practice uh, in Chelsea called Complete Physio, which is great. I've been there for a long time. And they're very flexible and, and accommodating for my horrible travel, travel schedules and things like that. And I'm a researcher, so I'm doing my PhD at Imperial College London in bioengineering. I love it. I love it. So talk to me, what originally got a guy like you into the world of physical preparation? And maybe beyond that, talk to us about your career path, because you've already mentioned like three continents, uh, <laughs> you know, PhD, like talk to us a little bit about what got you into this and then your career path so far? So, yeah, I, I, I love sport. I grew up um, playing rugby and I was a sprinter many years ago and I played a lot of basketball. So always interested in, in sport and sports medicine. Uh, my career path, I was sort of educated in Australia. As I said, I did a Bachelor of Health Science and a Bachelor of Applied Science in Physio and then a Master's of Sports Physio. And as I said, doing a PhD at the moment. Um, I sort of my focus sort of ended up shifting towards tendinopathy mainly because um, I liked uh, I, I liked track and field and the incidence of tendinopathy is quite high in track and field. But like most physios, I sort of started at the bottom. Um, most physios do end up that way. So a local rugby side progressed from there to you know a rugby league team and then moved to the UK 
worked in private practice a bit, did a bit of track and field, and then took a job at British Athletics, uh, where I worked for a couple of years, um, enjoyed it. It was really interesting, did lots of travel, learned a lot, had some great people to work with, wrote, wrote a couple of papers or assisted in writing a couple of papers with some of the British Athletics group. And then decided that I work better for myself, <laughs> which is probably a, a nicer way of saying something else. Um, <laughs> and then decided I really wanted a narrow focus on tendinopathy and biomechanics. So I started a consultancy um, and we focus on really only two things, tendon profiling. So we use a, a characterizing ultrasound machine called UTC and biomechanics uh, with a focus on return to play for those that are injured and performance profiling. So going in and running kinetics and kinematics on athletes to see what we can do to make them better. And I have a you know an incredible team that works for me and works with me. Um, so first it was Dr. Chris Richter who started the sports surgery clinic in Dublin. Um, and he's a, you know, he did his PhD in waveforms, super clever young man. Um, and I've been working with him for around seven years and essentially developing code and cluster analysis to allow kinetics um, and kinematic waveform analysis easier through coding. And we use Python for that. I've got Dr. Daniel Cohen, who is uh, everybody probably knows his hardware and software more than they know him. And he started Forstex some years ago. Mm. And Daniel is the font of information. Uh, I hate the word guru, but he really is you know, such an insightful and lovely human being. I've got like Dr. Andrew McDonald as well, um, and he's in Philadelphia, and he's been with me for a couple of years now, and he's the most well-spoken, gentle, giant, lovely human being as well. And I have two analysts here in in London, Liam and Stacey, and and we sort of work across, as as we talked about, uh, two continents. Um, the UK, we focus on rugby, track and field, tennis, football, as in soccer, as you know it. Mm-hmm. And in the US, mostly NBA and a little bit of NFL or whatever, whatever there's a tendon injury. I love it. Okay. Well, let's dive in because as I told you before the show, I've got approximately 371 questions about the Achilles for you. And that's just the Achilles, right? We joked around. We could do a whole show about yeah. the patellar tendon as well. But we could. let's start very broad because we've got all shapes and sizes of trainers, coaches, rehab professionals that listen to the show. Start by talking to us a little bit about just general lifestyle factors that could predispose someone to an Achilles injury. So I think, you know, some of the really good literature um, looks at prospective risk analysis and some of it is very researchy. Some of it is, you know, very real world. And I think body mass is really important. So those that are have very high body mass, obviously, your tendon is a tensile spring it's going to put a lot of stress and strain. Also, if you don't have a lot of strength in your plantar flexors for your Achilles or your um, quadriceps for your patella tendon, you know, you're potentially going to overutilize uh, and overstress the, um, the Achilles or patella tendon. Um, training history is really important. So how much activity or lack thereof they do and above those normal thresholds. Uh, previous injury history, so those that have had Achilles injuries or patellar tendon injuries are more uh, likely to have Achilles injuries or patellar tendon injuries in the future. Some of the research looks at reactive hop performance. That's a good predictive measure. Alcohol consumption, interestingly, is one that's sort of coming up a little bit more. Alcohol's um, very pro-inflammatory and has, you know, stimulates a lot of histamines, potentially that 
affects the, the or increases the risk of Achilles injury. More interestingly, um, I started a, a clinic about six years ago with a sports physician named Dr. John Houghton, and he's a the sports doctor for Wales football. And he's a he's a sports physician. He's also a rheumatologist, and it sort of opened my eyes a lot to people that just don't have mechanical uh, tendinopathy, and they're more systemic mm. uh, risk factors and things like gout, diabetes, high cholesterol, peri and postmenopausal women. They're very very difficult tendons to manage. Those with skin conditions like psoriasis and eczema, they will present with uh, expression of what's called the HIV twenty seven. Um, and psoriatic arthritis um, um, and rheumatoid factor type um, arthropathies, and they're very, very difficult to manage. Um, Malcolm Collins from South Africa, uh, he discovered what's called a Colfavo 5A1 polymorphism, which is a which is a polymorphism that instructs type 5 collagen alpha 1 chain to produce collagen, and some athletes that are predisposed to tendon injuries and i've had athletes that have twin brothers or twin sisters and they go on to have tendinopathy or worse and they come from certain um african heritage and caribbean heritage that have this polymorphism expressed so we don't obviously testing genetics is a is a very um is a very difficult topic to to get into but nevertheless they are less lifestyle more genetic factors but they sort of all factor into one big picture yeah well and that's why i wanted to start there because while we're going to talk a lot about the mechanics of it and mechanical things that we can do to you know diagnose or treat an achilles issue lifestyle is a big part of this and i want that to be Mm. on people's radar because i think too often we just think mechanical 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 and you got to think big picture too right like like you alluded to sleep inflammation all of these more or alcohol consumption all of these lifestyle related factors can play a part in this exactly cholesterol is a big one yep. you know the worst uh, achilles tendon i ever saw in somebody the under the age of 30 was a gentleman that came to see me with his achilles was so large in ap diameter that i could see them when he was facing forward oh and gosh. the orthopedic yeah the orthopedic surgeon sent him to me said i don't know I'm not sure what's wrong and we, I sent him back and said, please do some blood tests. And his cholesterol was 10 times oh my gosh. what is normal. And he was about to have a coronary. Um, so, you know, these lifestyle factors are super, super important as well. Love it. Okay. So as I've been digging into the research, learning more, I think I told you one of my athletes had an Achilles rupture two years ago, year and a half ago now. So I've really been diving in here. And in that journey, I came across this lecture by Jill Cook and talking about the difference between Achilles and patellar tendon issues. So one thing I thought was really interesting is she mentioned that while structurally, the Achilles and the patellar tendon are basically the same, morphologically, they are not. So could you explain how these two tendons are different? So it's a great question. They are similar. Um, morphology sort of implies shape and structure and the structure is similar i wouldn't say they're exactly the same but i'm going to sort of talk a little bit about around those the, those two concepts shape sure. and structure so the achilles tendon is a free tendon uh, it's modulated by the gastroxylaus complex um, it's interestingly enough undergoes very high tensile loads because it is the point of impact when running or cutting and therefore it attenuates force first but it has greater amplitude or sorry, greater magnitude of force. Um, that being said, patellar tendon is also modulated by the quadriceps muscles. 
but the loads just aren't quite the same. Now, the patella tendon is a bone-to-bone tendon. And if we really want to be anatomically specific, if we said something that goes from bone to bone, it would be a ligament. And this is an interesting topic where I think Americans call it the patella ligament. And I, in a way, I don't sort of disagree with that in some regards. A ligament doesn't have the same tensile properties as a tendon, but in a way it does function very similarly. It's a very short tendon and generally a little bit stiffer than the Achilles. The Achilles stiffness, as I said, is modulated by the patella tendon, uh, modulated by the gastroxylaris complex. And the patella tendon, yes, by the quads, but also keep in mind it has a bone in between. So there, there are similar similarities, but there are some serious differences. Um, patella tendon is a broad, flat tendon, very different shape to the Achilles tendon. Um, it's much shorter, as I said. And as I mentioned before, the magnitudes of the load are drastically different. So if you look at Pavo Comey's work from back in the 90s, you know, at six meters per second, we're talking nine kilonewtons of force, which can be up to 11 times body weight, which is yes. enormous for the for the Achilles tendon. Yeah. And the patella tendon is maybe six, five, six, maybe eight times body weight. So the load magnitudes are very different. Um, but also, I think one of the interesting things that people sort of forget this is that at the knee, there is more than just the patella tendon. So soleus is really important in providing breaking. You've got you know, the adductors, adductor magnus, really, um, some of the hamstrings help in deceleration of the shank. Whereas at the Achilles, you don't really have anything. You've got the Achilles tendon, maybe the FHL, maybe tip post, but there's nothing really like the Achilles in that area. So they are different, similar, similar, but a little very different. And, and interestingly enough, I think when you look at um, some of the, well, there was a systematic review done by Sean McAuliffe, if we just, I know we're going to touch on this a bit later, but the relative risk of people with changes in each tendon, you know, at the patella tendon, the relative risk is about, you know, four to six, whereas at the Achilles tendon, the relative risk goes up to, you know, 11 or 12. I can't remember exactly off the top of my head, but the relative risk goes up, you know, multiple factors um, at the Achilles. And that's simply because nothing else assists at the foot and ankle and, uh, the magnitudes are really high and the contact durations are really short. Yeah. Okay. So this probably could have been lumped into the previous question, but I didn't want to overwhelm. So what are some of the common areas of injury when it comes to the Achilles? Because again, kind of unlike the patellar tendon, there's generally one kind of breaking point. It seems like the, the Achilles, there's multiple points of potential failure, correct? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there are, and sorry, I broke up a little bit, um, and I think I think I sort of got the gist of the question. I think, you know, the the, ins- the Achilles, you know, there's different, obviously, pathologies that go on in different areas. At the insertion, you can have Haglund's changes, which basically acts like a cam on the tendon, and you have these ventral surface changes as well, which I've seen quite a lot of and, and more recently. Uh, you have muscular tendinous injuries, so much more higher in the tendon, and if you look at some of the research done or some of the, some of the anatomical um, research done by Carlos Pedret, who's a Spanish um, researcher out of Barcelona, he's found that some, um, some people have five uh, different pination angles of the soleus muscle. Therefore, you have different tendons as well. And there's three tendons. There's a medial, lateral, um, and central soleal tendon. And you they feed into the Achilles. So you can have these different 
injury areas there, you can have an accessory psoriasis, interestingly enough, and therefore you have a little bit different tendon. There's also these plantaris related, and, and obviously every clinic I, I see a lot of these plantaris related um, compression and irritation, which essentially, if, if just to give a very quick background, some research many years ago said that 15% of the population had a plantaris tendon, whereas a Dutch paper found that 85% of patients or people in normal cohorts have a plantaris tendon. So we we did a paper a couple of years ago. I'm not sure it was actually published. It was part of a PhD from Marvin Yeh um, at Imperial. And we essentially looked at the different attachment sites for um, plantaris tendon. And we found there were four. We typed them type one to five. Five was ones that we couldn't find on the imaging. Uh, the fourth was actually... Um, the one that attached into the Achilles tendon, and those those uh, those plantaris related Achilles tendonopathy are much much more difficult to manage, and you see them in the mid tendon, mm-hmm. you know, more often in the mid tendon. Then you have paratendinopathies, which is obviously the skin of the Achilles tendon, and then we start talking about intratendinous changes, linear tears, and superficial changes. But anecdotally, I think the patients that present with, you know, these very small linear changes on a superficial surface, they're in a lot of pain. They find the, you know, in palpation, it's exquisitely sore. And that's mostly because on that superficial surface is the paratenon. The paratenon is very neurally rich um, in free nerve endings and therefore they're a little bit more sensitive to pain and, and discomfort in that area. I can tell you this. Until I started diving into this, I had not thought about the plantaris muscle for at least 20 years. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's <laughs> you interesting. Forget it's even there. Talk, yeah, I mean, well, because the muscles, you know, sometimes a few centimeters, three centimeters in length, but the tendon, I've seen plantaris tendons that are so hypertrophied, they almost look, well, they have the same AP diameter as an Achilles tendon. So we see a lot of them. And, and interestingly enough, we just removed one from a rugby player recently who we just couldn't rehab him back. He's an international rugby player. And he just wouldn't, wouldn't, just couldn't rehab back. We did a couple of injections. We modified his loading. It just, we couldn't get it to work. And the surgeon just operated yesterday or the day before and sent me a report. And it was just this very thick, large, I could see the plantaris tendon under imaging. And we could see it under MRI and ultrasound and UCC. But we just couldn't get him better. And the surgeon basically just stripped 12 centimeters off it. And off he'll go. He'll make the World Cup. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. We're going to take a quick break from this episode with Jared to tell you about the Complete Coach Certification. If you're interested in learning more about assessment, program design, coaching and cueing, or simply how to choose the best exercises for your clients and athletes, this program will help. Built on over 22 years of personal experience, I've used the materials in this course with everyone from everyday Gen Pop clients to elite athletes playing in the NBA, NFL, or MLS. To learn more, head over to completecoachcertification.com, or if you'd like to attend our live upcoming event in Seattle, head over to completecoachcertification.com forward slash seminar. Thanks so much for listening, and now let's get back into the show with Jared. Okay, so talk to me about diagnosing Achilles tendon issues, and really two questions here. Number one, as practitioners, what tools do we have at our disposal? And then if we refer out, if we're lucky enough to work with someone like yourself, what types of imaging are we using these days and what can that tell us about the quality of someone's tendon? Okay, yeah, great question. 
First and foremost, all clinicians have their, should put their clinical hat on. And I think we start with a good clinical history, you know, along the lines of the onset, was there an incident or was it an insidious onset? Um, it's important to understand the patient's sport and their level of sport. If they've just started or if they're going back to it, these kinds of things are really quite important. The frequency of training and the loads associated with it. Women in sport is a huge focus. Peri and postmenopausal women of any age, but usually between that, you know, late 30, early 40s. Some people would shock horror that I said late 30s, but believe me, there are late 30 year old women that do get perimenopausal. They uh, have higher susceptibility because of a change in their hormone profile to tendon and bone injuries. Mm. So they're really important. But understanding those sorts of those, asking those questions and understanding what's going on. And sometimes you need to refer to your, your general practitioner or your physician to have better blood work, understanding the systemic factors, which we talked about before their strength work, their history of tendon injuries are super important. Have they had other tendon injuries? Um, and, and, and in that clinical history is their morning pain and stiffness. Those patients that have an hour, two hours, three hours of morning stiffness that's going to be a pretty difficult tenant to manage, no doubt. Then there's the examination, which is super important. And all of this is just things that you and I and clinicians that see uh, Achilles patients should be able to do without any specialty skills. Calf raise. Now, I've seen quite a few interesting, you know, middle-aged men um, that present to the clinic that don't have a ton of pain, but when you ask them to single-leg calf raise, can't get the heel off the floor. Now, you have to suspect a change in that length tension relationship and, you know, the integrity of that tendon. And these patients have tendon tears. They may not have a ton of pain because they've lowered their, their exercise capacity, but you have to suspect if they cannot, everybody should be able to do a single leg calf raise. And if they can't, one really has to suspect that. So a single leg calf raise really important. Have a look at the tendon. Is it super, super thick? Uh, some some plantaris, as you can see with people standing, you can see in you know this this raising of a or an extra tendon running along the medial pillar of the Achilles. Single leg repeated hop is super important. Palpation, is, you know, stick your fingers around the insertion. Is it an insertional? Is it along the medial column along the plantaris? Um, and then we start talking about imaging and. You know, different countries and different states in the United States, but different countries have different regulations on who can ultrasound and things like that. But ultrasound is a really important tool. Uh, it, it demonstrates, you know, that we can see the integrity of the tendon, the layers of collagen. You can see anatomy really well. You can't see bone. And for those insertional tendinopathies, you need an MRI um, because you also don't want to rule out bone stress because that's super important. Someone that's been running a lot, they describe insertional pain. You can't, can never rule out a bone stress. Um, but I think ultrasound is, is super useful. MRI generally for Achilles tendons is not super useful unless you have access to a high field strength 70 MRI, which I do, and the images are pretty incredible. But again, it takes an hour to scan someone and it's a 70 MRI and the amount of energy it uses is... <laughs> it's something special, but um, uh, an ultrasound is, you know, a good quality ultrasound, someone that uses ultrasound a lot. It reveals a lot of information. I use ultrasound. I also use um, a characterizing ultrasound called ultrasound tissue characterization, or the acronym is UTC, 
which gives you 0.2 millimeter slices and uh, then compiles it into a data block and then characterizes it into the stability of those echo patterns. It's got a very high ICC, which is that interclass correlation value of 0.98. So it's reproducible and all those sorts of things. So referring out is important. If you don't know, don't hold on to a, a patient or a client because you generally do more harm than good. Uh, but I think everybody has the ability to have a good clinical history and then a good clinical examination. And then, you know, if you think that you can give them a loading program, you know, I I think we'll go into that obviously coming up, but uh, I think loading of the calf and Achilles is generally underdone everywhere. And you'll see why when we talk about loading. I love it. Okay. So I want to talk more about UTC and imaging because, Long question here. I'll kind of set it up. But a while back, you were part of a research group. I believe this is when you were with British Track and Field. And you looked at the tendon quality in these athletes. And one section of this paper really stood out. Now, I'm going to paraphrase. But correct me if I'm wrong. But it appears as though older athletes, and I think your determination of old in this case was like greater than 25, which really makes me feel old. But anyway, (laughs) athletes older than 25 have worse looking tendons via these ultrasound scans. But here's what was interesting. The quality of the tendon wasn't necessarily reflective of whether they had Achilles symptoms or not. So in that case, what can we take away from those findings? I mean, does that mean imaging isn't that important or it's not reflective? Like, help me understand that. Mm, It's a a really good question. I think when we talk about the, the quality of looking at the tendon and it didn't match up with some of the Achilles symptoms. I have to I have to really just hone in on something that's super important. And those Achilles symptoms were assessed with a, a PROM, a patient reported outcome measure called the Visa A. Okay. Now the Visa A is not a particularly good tool for looking at Achilles symptoms. It's failed a rash analysis. And it's actually interestingly, not surprisingly, as part of my PhD, which is in conjunction with um Professor Peter Magnuson and Dr. Katja, uh, Dr. Ansophie Agigaj, you'll kill me for saying that, um, <laughs> where, we're develop- where we're developing a new PROM. Mm-hmm. And we prom- patient report outcome measures, they're very difficult and you require a large number of patients suffering with Achilles problems to really hone it down. So in answer to that question, yes, the older, older tendons generally didn't look as good under, under UTC, it didn't match with the Visa A outcomes, but then I would argue that the Visa A is not a particularly good prop. Gotcha. That being said, do, does structure and pain marry particularly well? That is my PhD question. Okay. So it's, it's a very difficult one. I think when we talk about the Achilles tendon, we always lump in, well, you, you know, we do MRI of the old lumbar spine and the lumbar spine shows asymptomatic findings, et cetera, et cetera. But the lumbar spine is, is many springs on top of each other, but then it's so far away from point of contact where the magnitudes are so high and so quick that they're not really comparable. One's a compressive spring, one's a tensile spring. And we know from um, Sean McAuliffe's work that if you do have these changes in the tendon, chances are very high that you're going to experience symptoms. So I don't think, you know, your final question was, does that mean imaging isn't important? 
it is important. That's why we keep doing it. Yeah. Um, and I don't think we will not do it. And and one final analogy was, and this was brought to me by Christian Coop, who is a fantastic researcher up in Copenhagen, and he's published some great work on the patellar tendon and the Achilles. And and uh, I had the pleasure of sitting down with him and a bunch of the other group up at um, the IOC center there. Um, and his analogy was this, is what do you think would come first, altered structure or pain? I would think altered structure. In right. And so when the structure is altered, it's the tip of the iceberg. Pain is on its way. Yep. And I think if one of the sort of the, the quest for the Holy Grail is how do we prevent alterations in tendon structure, that might be loading. It might be some of the stuff that's getting done, some of the research, um, the, the cellular research that's being done elsewhere. But essentially, if we could monitor tendon structure early in a sensitive way and prevent it from happening, then maybe we wouldn't get pain because pain doesn't really occur without altered structure. And I think that really something has to come first. And I don't think it's so simple to say, well, tendon pain and tendon structure don't marry. They do. Karen Silvernagel's group and, and, and there's a couple other different groups that have shown that they, it really does, but maybe not in the way that's just so linear that we understand it, that it's binary. Yes, no. Gotcha. I love it. Sorry. That's, that long no, answer that, to a short question. It was not a short, <laughs> short question, first of all. And that, that definitely helps. So we need a better intake, basically, or a better way to... We need a, be- we need a better sensitive prom. Yes. And hopefully, hopefully this prom that we're trying to develop at the moment, just to give you an idea, it takes um, a couple of rounds of 200 people to create a prom at oh 200 gosh. patients. It's, it's, a, it's a big deal. It's a massive undertaking. So light work. We'll see. Light work. Mm, <laughs> mm, we'll see. We'll see. That's all right. Okay. So I definitely want to talk training because, you know, I love this idea of understanding lifestyle factors, diagnosis, but let's talk treatment and things that we can do in the strength and conditioning or personal training field. Because even though you're not on social media a lot, those of our, us that do have to go there from time to time know that nobody likes to argue more than strength coaches on social media. So for starters, let's just talk about the role of ISOs and isometrics. Because I feel like a couple years ago, there was tons of support about isometrics. Oh yeah, tendons, you got to get them on an ISO program. And now maybe people are, maybe they're just jaded or they're bored with the topic, but they're kind of falling off the bandwagon. So to be really direct, when you're looking at Achilles, do you focus more on ISOs Slow and controlled eccentrics, is it a blend? I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts on this. So just to quote you a little bit, certainly, well, like every bandwagon, their fads fade. Yeah. And unfortunately, some of the research around isometrics has been proved disproven. Seth O'Neill, Dr. Seth O'Neill, who's a good colleague and friend of mine, uh, has published work. Uh, there's some Danish work that's been published. Unfortunately, I don't think the isometric work was convincing enough. That being said, I would say to people, if you think you can get some anecdotal pain relief from an isometric, then I guess do it. I think you can get a similar effect from putting somebody on a bicycle or, matter of fact, just give them a hug. <laughs> but that being, that, that being said, there has been some very strong evidence from a group at Humboldt University in Berlin, um, Professor Adiamantos Arampatsis, who published some fantastic work on the use of heavy ISOs, which I include in my 
in my programs. And essentially, it was a 2007 and then a follow-on paper from 2010 where he looked at high-strain isometrics and very relatively short contraction times, three seconds. But they were 90% MVC. And he just sort of compared 90 versus 55% MVC. And essentially, you know, the impact on healthy tendons, I'm just going to caveat and say that was healthy tendons, the impact on healthy tendons in terms of improving stiffness and strain rates and generally the mechanical properties of I mean, Achilles tendon were unequivocal. You, you just, you couldn't argue with it. So my loading when I load people is multifactorial. I like to do isotonics, so concentric with a little small isometric at the top just to get a good contraction and then a slow eccentric. And I think when you look at some of Mads Consgard work, who is a researcher that looked at patella tendon, there's a reason why isotonics work really well is that you get this increase in collagen turnover, which we can talk about a little bit later, but you get this infill of fibrils within if it's a tendinopathic area. But I think, you know, isometrics, there's been some, you know, obviously very interesting papers that have gone on looking at isometrics and they're great for rapid force production, et cetera, et cetera. But I think, you know, if, if you said to any Olympic strength coach, Olympic lifting coach, you're only allowed to do isometric training. They would probably drop their lifting shoes and walk out the door. <laughs> that they, they're going to want to do concentric and eccentric training because that's how sport is played, yep. is done concentrically and eccentric. And I, and I think it's really important that those contraction types are utilized because there's really good evidence for it. Love it. Okay, so maybe in that same vein, because that's a lot different, right, than what people were prescribing with like five sec or maybe like five rounds, 45 second holds, these really long duration ISOs. How would you program more specifically for somebody like this, right? So you said short contraction times, maybe like three seconds, you know, give me an idea. What does the volume of that look like? Or maybe, I don't know, maybe you so, don't know the answer so to that yet, but. Well, I mean, I think what you're referring to is the analgesic loading. And, yes. I, and I, as I said, I don't, yes. I don't think the analgesic loading, I don't think the research is very clear on that. As I said, I think you can use it if your patients get a bit better. But that's, for me, I don't, I don't, I don't use it because I don't think the evidence is strong enough. A paper with six people in it is not convincing enough for me to make a decision. Part of my PhD is looking at 70 patients, which could be upwards of 80, 90, 10. And so I think this, the power of a paper is is illustrated by the cohort size but that being yep. said my loading programs are looking at restoring strength so those that have achilles or patellar tendinopathy usually at least if it's chronic or there is a chronicity to it there is some deficit in strength and capacity and then as they get stronger i build in faster rate loading which is arguably maybe plyometrics slow plyometrics and Eamon Eamon flanagan but I hope I always say his first name incorrectly to start with. It's Eamon Flanagan, very clever um, uh, PhD uh, up in Ireland. And he basically, his PhD was looking at quantifying plyometrics. And I think we all go, well, yeah, just hop. But what is a hop? Right. Fast hop, slow hop, double leg hop. You know, uh, when you look at a contraction time, a counter movement jump is a plyometric activity. Mm -hmm. But it's a slow plyometric activity. Whereas, you know, a drop jump or, you know, scissor, scissor sprints are very short contact times. So I think those things are really important. So looking at double leg versus single leg, but that's sort of your progression. In my programs, I have a mix of a bit of everything. So it's, you know, it will be a seated calf raise. Um, it will be, you know, a very heavy ISO. It will be, 
um, a straight leg, there'll be BFR or occlusion training. So there's some very good evidence for that. You know, I think in my programs, I think as a physiotherapist, and I answer this question the same every time, every single person in an athlete's or a patient's life cycle of an injury, everybody's important. And I'm talking about team environments, strength and conditioning coaches. In some regards, sometimes I have a little bit more in common with them than I might with my physio colleagues because how I get rid of tendinopathy is not with my hands. It's with right. the strength coaches. It's it's loading it, loading it away because there's not that many passive modalities that actually really work, let's be fair. Yep. Interesting. Interesting. Okay, so... Controversial. Yeah, no, I love it. I love it. And that's probably why you and I get along so well. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So you kind of already mentioned this, but I want to dive a little bit deeper because there does seem to be a lot of interest around the position of your Achilles work too. And, you know, again, diving into all these random papers, they're standing with knee straight, standing with knee bent, they're seated. And again, you kind of talked about hitting on all of those. What's your decision-making process there? Maybe would be a better question because you already said you use them. What would help you decide, oh, I'm going to go seated versus standing? You know, kind of I do. Walk me through that. I would, I would do both. If I'm really honest, uh, I don't think you can really do enough. And and this comes back to a really uh, interesting. I'll just tell you an anecdote later now about something that happened some time ago. Is many years ago we were when I was at British Athletics, we we tried to do a survey to understand why tendinopathy was such a big issue in track and field. And obviously, there's a reason why. But when we sent out this, the the questionnaire, we we wanted to understand from coaches what their loading strategies were. For mainly Achilles, but obviously in our jumpers, we had, you know, patellotonopathy. And it was really interesting to hear that mainly in the middle distance runners is that they didn't do any calf loading because they were running. So they didn't need to. Right. So, you know, for me, I think it's really, really important to have a period, really good periodized program. Um, and in terms of, you know, loading strategy, it's seated calf raise does soleus. Variable foot position, which is the Nunes paper, di loads different parts of gastrox and soleus standing calf raise does a lot of gastrox that's also important yeah. um different modalities occlusion as i mentioned um heavy iso super heavy iso these are like just super maximal isos i mean super maximal or just sub maximal isos 90 95% mvc isos are very different to being able to hold for 45 seconds the yeah. load magnitudes are vastly different and i i think you know, because I use force platforms a lot, I think it's important that athletes with Achilles injuries, they need to be able to demonstrate return to play or at least, you know, if they're not a, an elite athlete, they need to demonstrate that they can generate enough force to warrant going back to their activity, their sport. So minimum twice body weight. And, you know, as I mentioned him before, Seth O'Neill's done some great stuff in rugby looking at thresholds for players in different positions and hopefully i'll be able to do that in some of my phd in in, in different sports um looking at thresholds for strength in different sports and that's something that we don't really know is there a prognostic um is there a prognostic metric and i, I did a paper with dr daniel cohen and, and alejandro and a couple of people in spain looking at elite volleyball and we found that using force platforms there was there were interestingly enough durations there were some other metrics but there were some durations that when their durations were a little bit longer they were more predisposed there was a higher relative risk of developing patellar tendinopathy in season in elite volleyball 
So I think, you know, the, the, the need for a periodized strength program addresses some of these things, but understanding that, you know, strength is, you know, the fundamental undertaking for a lot of these strength coaches that sort of need to be done. Um, and to do that, the programs need to be periodized. I love it. Talk to me a little off script here, but talk to me about symmetry, right? Because something that you've touched on a couple of times now is this idea of strength, uh, especially if somebody's coming back, you know, they probably have some sort of tissue change, right? But there's probably some sort of output change as well. And again, this is something that the Twitter SNC coaches love to argue about. Is there like this perfect blend of symmetry or, you know, is it a 10%? Like, do you buy into that at all? Do you adhere to any certain percentage when you're trying to bring somebody back? Well, I mean, in an ideal world, we'd all love to be symmetrical, but right. in a real world, that's not possible. Right. You know, I think Matt Jordan published some work in skiers and he found very one, you know, single digit percentage asymmetries in certain metrics. Uh, I think in the most sports, except cycling and maybe skiing and, and swimming, most sports are asymmetrical. Um, and so therefore, the quest for symmetry is probably not attainable. That being said, I think returning a player back to sport, you want to try and bridge that asymmetry gap a little bit. But I think yep. monitoring that asymmetry, so large deviations in asymmetry, whether it be EDRFD or, you know, impulses or durations, if you can get single single limb durations, contraction durations, I think monitoring asymmetry through a season, I think is important because if they're beginning to fluctuate, that's an issue. But understanding that in Premier League football, there is a 12 to 15% asymmetry because interestingly enough, footballers generally kick off one leg, yep. generally. And so they have a stance leg and they have a striking leg. So their striking leg is their stronger leg. Sorry, I'm stoked. Their stance leg is their stronger leg. Yep. Their striking leg is the whipping leg, but they break and you know hold their whole body mass on one leg while they kick the ball off their non well their, their dominant leg, their non-striking leg. So I think the quest for symmetry is that it's it's never really attainable. It's monitoring the the asymmetry that it stays very constant. And if you're rehabbing an athlete, try and bridge that a little bit. Bring that athlete back better. It's always the goal with, in an attendant injury to bring that athlete back better than what they were injured because that's the whole kind of point of rehab, isn't it? Yes, I love it. Okay, so a while back, I was listening to Ebony Rio talk about Achilles issues and the role of foundational strength. So I'm excited to talk to you about this one because I feel like I know your thought. But she had this anecdote, and I thought it was fascinating because I've seen it too. She's talking about this ultra marathoner that shows up on her doorstep, you know, so this guy's doing hundred mile races and literally came in so weak. The guy couldn't do four standing calf raises, which is just mind blowing to think about, right? That you can go run a hundred miles, but you can't do four calf raises. So if we wanted to bring this full circle, cause we've touched on a lot of different topics and maybe give some really actionable items for the trainers and coaches who are listening in, what general rules would you give for helping keep the Achilles tendon healthy and just thriving for the people that they're working with? Yeah, I think it's a, it's an interesting anecdote. Ultramarathoners don't really run, they plod. So <laughs> I've, I've seen a few of them and I wouldn't really call it running. But that being said, I think in season, we're talking normal asymptomatic tendons. I think twice a week loading is great and you need to – they need to undergo some stimulus. You know, we're not doing rotator cuff strengthening. We're doing 
gastroxylaus strengthening. So I think in season is twice a week and it would be minimum two, minimum, excuse me, two exercises. I think that's really important <clears throat> that they do a bent knee and a straight leg. Yep. And it could be a, you know, a seated isotonic. It could be a straight leg, heavy iso. It could be a straight leg calf raise through range. Out of season is where I really like players, my players that are, you know, if they're just in the off season with different teams, I really like them to push strength. Just get as strong and as robust as they can. And that's what strength coaches are amazing at is building in robustness. Give them, you know, a proper periodized strength program three times a week, calf, hamstring, quad. It's the same thing. Same with patella tendon. Yep. You know, it's when I when I sent through my modifier, I call it a modified cons guard program because the cons guard program is very, very difficult. But a modified cons guard program has three exercises in it. Okay. So it'll be single leg knee extension, assuming they have no pathology underneath their kneecap and they can do it. Single leg leg press and it'll be a, you know, a split squat or a front squat or a back squat. So it's three exercises. It's the same with the Achilles and calf. It's three exercises, bent knee, straight knee, heavy iso done because that's what we would do for other muscle groups right so multi-planar is important for the for the foot as i mentioned before but moderate and heavy slow resistance just a really sound periodized program and i i just find that quite often the alfredson eccentrics from which was developed by Hockan some years ago i think it was groundbreaking for its time without a doubt in my mind but i think if we want to prevent it, we know that it's a risk factor. If we want to prevent tendinopathy, one of the easiest things to do is get people nice and strong. It's just refreshing to hear someone like yourself say that. Because I think so often people are looking for like this magic bullet. Like, oh, if I just add this one thing into my program, it's going to bulletproof my... No, man. Like, it's a, it's a, it's yeah. a kind of like broad, wide scope of things done really well for a long period of time and... When you do those things, it's amazing how much more, like you alluded to, how much more resilient and robust you can make your athletes. Yeah, I think I think exactly. And as you mentioned, and it's 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 worldwide. People are always looking for a panacea. Yep. You know, is it a supplement? Is it, you know, I don't really want to get into supplements because that's quite controversial. But is <laughs> it a supplement? Is it a passive modality? Is it a this? Is is it a that? Actually. The key is actually with your main your main group, your main listeners, which is strength and conditioning. And they're the ones that really can prevent the injury because it's we know one of the biggest modifi- modifiable risk factors is strength, yeah. body mass and, re- and, and strength and things like that. So, yeah. I love it. Okay. Big question time, my friend. If you could alter the space-time continuum and give young Jared Antflick one piece of advice, what would it be? Oh, what would it be? Um, gosh, what would it be? I think it it would have been study harder when I was younger. Mm. I think when I was younger, I I liked playing sport. I was probably um, more focused on my sport than I was my my scholastic endeavors. And and I think it probably would be that is to focus earlier on on my physics and chemistry. I loved biology, but it was my physics and chemistry probably would have been to focus on that a little bit more and and stop going out and partying and playing sport. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing how those keep coming back to haunt you, right? (laughs) If you haven't spent the time really diving in. If I had to listen to that chemistry lesson, yeah. yeah. 
I know. All right, my friend. Last but not least, we got our lightning round. So four fairly Go short ahead. questions. Your answer is going to be as long or short as you like. Number one, you have to choose between soccer and basketball. Which has the worst Achilles issues and why? Worst Achilles? You mean in terms of prevalence? So yeah. Highest number or? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. I'd probably say basketball just because it's such an explosive sport. But then football, the mileage is so high. That's a, that's a real tough one. See, that's I, what I, I kept would, coming back I, there to. Needs to be, there needs to be an epidemiological study done on it. Yeah. You know, and, and it hasn't been done a little bit here and there, but that's a, that's a real tough one. I mean, football, there is a lot of football teams in England and around the world. There's probably more football players yep. than, than in basketball. So you need a point incidence and things like that. I couldn't answer that question. I'm so sorry. No, that's all right. I maybe, knew that Maybe would be both. Tough. That would be tough. Okay. Uh, of all the continents you've lived on and grown up on, which one would you choose? I think originally I had Australia or Europe, but man, where do you where do you like to be? Well, I think we want to move to the US. Really? Um, yeah. I, we're just, a, the weather in England is sort of grating on us a little bit, but we love Europe. Um, but I don't know. We'll see. The future holds question mark maybe maybe sunshine in california i don't know it won't be australia for a while australia just um yeah it does it doesn't have the the level of of sport or at least the salaries around sport to warrant having someone like me around so i wouldn't probably get be able to get a job there (laughs) for sure it'd be jobless that's that yeah that's never good all right number three You've played a lot of sports. You've worked around a lot of sports. What's your favorite sport to watch as a fan? Motorcycle racing, if you can believe that. Really? Yeah. I've, Any I've Achilles issues there? None. Just oh. catastrophic injuries. <laughs> but I, I love I love MotoGP. I always have. I used to work many years ago in MotoGP. Um, I love track and field, and I love um, basketball. But I, I'm more and more, I'm loving NFL. It's such a, an incredible sport to watch. Yes, and football. I mean, it's it's tough, but I, I always watch every round of the MotoGP. So if that's any indication, if there was less basketball games, I'd probably watch more of them too. But yeah. there's so many of them, hard to watch. But and I love rugby as well. Uh, rugby is one of my favorite sports. I love it. Okay, without last... without the recent without the recent rule changes. Sorry, after yeah. you. No, you're good. You're good. Okay, last but not least, number four. What's next for Jared Amflick? What are you working on? What are you excited about? Anything? So finishing my PhD. Um, some really interesting stuff. I don't, I don't love to put the uh, cart before the horse too much, but PhD stuff. Um, really excited to to understand a little bit more about the the, the question around tendinopathy and kinetics. I think that's really exciting. Um, I've got some great people that I work with and that want to sort of grow out and do things. And, you know, we're working with more and more um, sporting teams uh, in the US and in the UK, but in the US. Um, Maybe a move to America. Uh, I'm not sure yet. But, um, yeah, finishing my PhD is really high on the list and then watching my little people grow. Um, I've got, you know, one one at the moment and a little one on the way. And nothing gives me more joy than... Than, um, than watching them grow and, and, and seeing them learn because I want them to not make the same mistakes I, <laughs> I did when I, when I was growing up and learning. Yes, yes. When, when do you think the PhD will be done? Do you have like a timeline or tentative goal? Yeah, it'll be, quite a, it'll be a couple of years. Um, a lot, I'm in data collection at the moment uh, and there's another project that I want to do in the US which is data collection as well. Uh, and then once I've got all of that, it'll be a couple of years of writing. So... I, I have, I'm three years in, I have 
as a part-time PhD. I have what all all up eight years. So I, I have time. I don't intend to use the whole eight years because I think <laughs> I would find myself without my wife and my family. She would probably <laughs> leave me. But um, but uh, I think probably three or four years. Yeah, I love it. Well, good luck with yeah. that. Obviously, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, cheering for you, man. Uh, it's been amazing catching up today. And again, I know you're super busy all over the world. Uh, so I appreciate your time. Where can my listeners find out more about you and all the great work that you're doing? So I, I, I am on Twitter occasionally. It's at Jared Antflick. Um, I I'm at I work at a place called the Fortius Clinic. I think those that are really interested in research should turn to the, a Danish group at the IOC Research Center in Copenhagen. And I think they're, they're at Twitter account is at ISM Copenhagen. Um, and they've published some great tendon research. But myself, I'm just at Twitter. Um, yeah, my consultancy is total-performance.com. Well, I'll get all, I'll get all the links in there awesome. so people can find you thank and you. Uh, see what you're up to these days. But again, Jared, thank you so much for your time, man. I really appreciate it. No, thank you for having me. And it was great, really insightful questions. And hopefully... Um, Hopefully we can build a build a, a big network of, of blended physios and S and C because I think that's the future of, of managing these injuries. All right, my friend, that does it for this week's episode with Jared Antflick. Really hope you enjoyed it. This is our first time actually ever talking. Uh, we've emailed back and forth a couple times, and man, I have so much respect for Jared and the work that he's doing. He's such a brilliant individual, and you can tell there's certain moments there where he's probably talking over most of our heads with some of the higher-end physiology and genetics, but I love how he can take that and then bring it back to a practitioner's level and talk about, hey, at the end of the day, lifestyle factors are important. Getting your clients and athletes on a solid loading program is critically important. So really, really hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, do me one small favor. Go right now to wherever you consume podcasts and subscribe. iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, Spotify, the Amazon store, wherever you consume podcasts, hit the subscribe button right now so you know each and every week when a new episode drops. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you, and we'll be back next week with our next episode. Take care.